Welcome to Funding the Future, a special edition of Category Visionaries, where instead of interviewing founders, we interview the VCs and angel investors that back them with capital, resources, and advice. Now, let's jump straight into today's episode. Hey, everyone, and thanks for listening. Today, I'm speaking with Carlos Eduardo Espinal, Managing Partner at SeedCamp. Carlos, thanks for chatting with me today. Hey, thanks for having me, Brett. Yeah, no problem. So to kick things off, could you just tell our audience a bit more about who you are, your background, and how you made your way into the world of venture? Sure thing. So just a little bit of background. I'm one of the two managing partners of SeedCamp. SeedCamp's a European-based uh, seed stage fund that invests everything from angel rounds all the way to seed stage, which now these days is quite broad. And I was chatting with Brett before uh, this podcast started and sharing a little bit of the fact that I sound American because I went to school in the States. I started off my career in engineering. I was working for an organization that at the time was called GT Internet Working, and it had a division called Cybertrust. And it was the organization that belonged to the notable Walt Berenick Newman back in the day, which has the really interesting history of having been the engineering company that started the DARPAnet back in Alwife in Boston, Massachusetts. And so I had a couple of very notable colleagues. One of them was Ken Pogren, who famously was involved with FTP, and Walter Urbaniak. And they really gave me a lot of really cool insights into sort of the underpinnings of the internet, everything from layer two to layer three, DCPIP, and everything having to do with security and, and some of the early days around cryptography. So that's where I started. And I really enjoyed it. I learned a lot. I wasn't I wouldn't say that I was the best in here in any way, capacity, but I really enjoyed that. And I did that coming out of university as my first job. But then I moved quickly into engineering in the New York Stock Exchange's division group. And there I did part of the design with the, another team of both the devices that the training floor used, as well as the wireless network that they used. And this was to give you some sense of scale date. That was when Adatula A was being approved and Adatula B was sort of recently approved. So, you know, those are now standards that are, are dated, but gives you a sense of how much we progressed on all that stuff. And what the trading floor would do is set up all the different wireless trading platforms that traders could use when they were trading during the, the day, the specialists would. And so that was my that was my first two jobs. And and during that time frame I got to meet a guy who is based out here in London. His name is Sean Seaton Rogers. He co-founded a, a fund called Pro Founders Capital. And he introduced me to this idea of venture and I realized that, that sounded like a lot of fun, and I'd love to do that after I, I graduated from an MBA, which I wanted to get in order to really hone some of the skills that I, I didn't have. And I think a lot of people can look at MBAs and think of them as completely useless. I think if you're an engineer and you haven't really been exposed to some of the business concepts, I think it's definitely a value add. So I really enjoyed that. And when I graduated, as we were discussing, Brett, because I'm from Honduras, I, I wasn't able to stay in the US with the visa that I had. And the UK welcomed me. And so I, uh, I moved over. And ironically, Sean had also moved to the UK recently. And so he uh, connected me with a few friends. And then lo and behold, I ended up working at a venture fund called Dowdy Hansen, based in London. And Dowdy Hansen was one of the original investors in SeedCamp. And I met my colleague, uh, Reshma, at a social event unrelated to SeedCamp because it predated it. But we got to know each other. And then after about a few years of SeedCamp starting, she was doing it by herself. Saul Klein, our, our chairman, was leading, but from an operational point of view, 
freshman said, hey, you know, I, I'd like to do this more than just by myself. So we want to join full time. I was helping from the sidelines with the Dirty Hansen LP hat on. And so I joined full time. And that was in 2010. So it's been now 13 years since that date and have really enjoyed every day. I've been working with over 450 companies to date. It's been really cool experiencing entire sectors being born and showcasing the best of what Europe has to offer. You know, as I was preparing for this interview, I was watching some of your previous interviews and I found one of you on the London Reel and they described you and Seedcamp as the OGs of the European tech ecosystem. And then I looked at the date of that video and it was from 2013. So at this point, you guys are true OGs if it's you know, 10 years later and people were already saying that about you in 2013. So tell us about how you've seen the world of early stage investing evolved since that time period in 2010, I think it sounds like is when you joined. Yeah, no, it's a good sort of point of reflection. I think one of the things that I wanted to, to sort of maybe touch upon before going down that path is this idea of, of an OG. And I, and I think that I know that it's in many ways as a compliment and as a nice thing, but it is an incredible responsibility to be part of the early foundation of, of an ecosystem. And, you know, acknowledging all the people that were involved. And I think that whenever you look at it as a single-handed entity like Seedcamp, it's actually probably misrepresenting what enabled us to be here. Seedcamp started off as a collection of like-minded investors, angels, VCs, and and some LPs that were more traditional, as well as some operators and, and some specialists, like a couple of law firms that were involved in building out the original ecosystem. And then you look at their role, they were the OGs. In many ways, they were the ones that believed in this idea that Europe had potential beyond what many LPs in the US thought as a small market outside of the main global venture market, which was Silicon Valley. And back in the day when I started, it was already considered to some extent a maturing from the original days of European venture, which were more like in the late 90s, early 2000s with you know semiconductors and ARM and all this. But frankly, we were still at a very nascent stage where we didn't really have a highly connected European ecosystem. We didn't have like a connection and communication between East Europe and Western Europe. A lot of the capital was still locked up in the UK and, and France and, and Germany. All the emerging ecosystems that are now part of a huge contributor of, of GDP globally, like the Portuguese ecosystem and the Romanian ecosystem and the Nordic ecosystem, Estonian ecosystem, all those were still not really rising because they were just in the in the early days of building out some of the notable companies that came to define them, like PayPal's of, of the world, the, you know, the transfer wises of the world. So it was very interesting because it was literally watching the birth of an explosion. And, you know, I was very lucky to be part of and witness that that birth across so many different countries all at the same time. And it all happened because of the collaboration between all these people who believe fundamentally in the possibility of what European venture could be. And I think that's hard to even imagine. So just to you know, better understand what it was like back then, were there a lot of investors who just really disregarded the European market and just didn't think that it was really relevant and they wanted to focus on Silicon Valley entirely? Was that the general sentiment back then? It was actually I, to some, I wish I was looking for this slide, but back in the days when I was at Dari Hansen, and we were raising a new fund. One of my colleagues in the pitch deck of the fund that we were raising had a slide that was like, why Europe, why now? And I remember that slide because I wish I had it in front of me because I bet you the numbers 
were all like his graph is showcasing the future potential of Europe and the growth that it had. I bet you that those numbers are small relative to what actually happened. And they were probably, you know, conservative at the time and they felt probably aggressive at the time, but they're like in retrospect, they're, they're probably quite conservative. And it's possibly because there's a lot of things that, and in this, maybe bringing the conversation slightly into investment sectors and other things. But there's, we as people and the humans, and we always think we kind of can guess the future of behaviors and what, what will succeed and where it will come from. But we, we get it wrong more often than not, right? Like, for example, part of the reason why the fintech revolution exploded in Europe versus, let's say, the US, starting with companies like TransferWise, was because it had a fractured currency. Not, you know, obviously the euro is, is a central currency, but the fact that you had all these a trading block where you would have pounds coming in, euros and other currencies like the dollar and all exchanging with, with goods and services made it such that the nomenclature and the need for multiple exchanging of currencies in any given day was faster and, and more voluminous than those in the United States. So hence, that was why it was born, right? And if you look at the birth of certain other industries like the gaming industry in Finland, Again, it was a birth of, of mobile gaming from Rovio and a couple of other games that ended up being runaway hits. And then, of course, you, you have a cottage industry that formed from that. You, you look at PayPal, you look at Skype, and you look at those stories and all the people that left those companies and started other companies. So I think whatever the older LPs that dismissed the European ecosystem, they couldn't fathom something like these companies being born because of the intrinsic elements of the European uh, market and, and innovation of founders once companies became successful. And how do you think the European ecosystem differs from, let's say, the, the Silicon Valley ecosystem? And specifically, like, what's the philosophy on startup company building there versus, you know, what you think it is in the US? So it's probably worth unpacking it across two variables. There's actually three, but I only have to some extent capacity to talk about two. The third one is from an LP point of view, but I think you better ask an LP that question. But from a founder point of view and from an investor point of view, the difference are increasingly converging to very similar with particularly New York. So I would say London and New York have a hell of a lot more in common than, let's say, many places in Silicon Valley. Silicon Valley is unique in the sense that it's been the epicenter of startup life for such a long time that there's so many funds and the volume of capital available across different stages. It's just mind-boggling, right? But putting that aside, like if you look at from 2007, which is actually when I started in venture, to now, you see the democratization of what it takes to build a company is pretty much on parity now between a European founder and a US founder. Sure, there's different markets and there's different experience levels across different little things, but, but fundamentally, the anecdotes that people share, whether it be on social media, YouTube, uh, startup school, or anything like that, you have access to that as a founder today. And that wasn't the case about a decade plus ago. So fundamentally, from a awareness of the ambition and success stories and what it takes to build a, a global company, I would say European founders are in parity with any founder in the US or anywhere else in the world. I think founders around the world generally in large hubs have access to the same insights from the same companies that have been successful and usually have one or two degrees of connection to the founders or operators who help those companies become successful. The investor landscape is slightly different. Um, the U.S. continues to have a lion's share of, of venture money, and that's a function of many things, little things and big things, some cultural, some structural. So, for example, a structural one that is also cultural, 
but to intersect is that the U.S. has uh, university endowments that do have a culture of repeatedly investing into venture funds. You know, you have the, you know, like the Stanford endowment, Harvard endowment, Yale, and all these large universities who have tons of money that is specifically earmarked for venture. And that's something that around the world isn't the case. There's not many universities in the world that have those kinds of endowments. So it just means that the access for money to uh, venture funds in the U.S. Is, is a lot more refined, and therefore it means you have a lot more availability of capital, which means you have a lot more tolerance for risk across all the different stages. So where Europe has started to normalize around that is that in certain areas like seed, founders pretty much have access to pretty much any kind of seed stage investment they want now in Europe. Whereas I would say growth stage funding is probably still favoring the U.S. Yes, of course, there's European players, but by volume, I think the U.S. still wins there. So it's been normalizing on the capital side, but on the founder side, I would say skill set wise and access to the right information of what excellence looks like, I think is now on parity. I think the last point maybe on the founder front is, of course, in the U.S., you have a lot more anecdotes that go far, far deeper in history, right? Because the ancient history of venture, you know, is in the late 60s or 70s, semiconductors, Silicon Valley, hence the name. And so, of course, you, you have generations upon generations upon generations of good anecdotes. And I think that that's where organizations like Y Combinator do such a great job of bringing together, you know, generations and generations of, of successful founders for new generations of founders. And how many years away do you think we are from U.S. funding and European funding to be equal or close to equal? Well, I think if you're asking that question from a homegrown point of view, it's different than from an imported capital point of view. I think we both know that you can buy Evian bottles of water anywhere around the world pretty much, but that doesn't mean that the water's grown in that geography. It's still a product of France, you know, sourced from France, and this is exported. And I think that capital is no different. I think your question can be broken out into, is it likely that the source of capital will always be the local market in parity with the U.S.? I don't think so. But is it likely that U.S. and or other large capital market providers become a sort of the export of capital? We're already seeing that. We're seeing a lot of venture U.S. venture funds entering the European market. But I suspect in the future, it wouldn't strike me as odd if we had other large G7 countries doing the same. And something I used to hear from founders maybe like four or five years ago was just that there wasn't a lot of growth stage capital to support you know, really big, ambitious visions and companies. And that's where they typically had to go to US investors. But I think from what I've read, that's changing now, right? Isn't there a lot more access to late stage growth capital than there was a couple of years ago? It is. And I think where it's really hard to answer this question Brett, is that you need to look at it a little bit like a bell curve where there's always outliers, founders that are growing really quickly. And then there's on the other end of the, the bell curve, there's companies that are struggling, right? And if you look at a perfect parabolic function where you have so many different types of money for the right stage you're in, you basically can be a company in any one of those stages and you will receive the amount of money you should based on the quality of company you are. And so that would define a perfectly liquid market for any company. If you're a great company, there'll be a few investors that will be able to get in on a deal. If you're not a very good company, very few investors will be interested, hence the different part of the bell curve. And then if you're a good enough company, if it's not better than average, you'll probably have the large probability of investors who would at least be interested in investing. Now, 
as the sources of capital start getting more and more limited for any one geography, you start having less of a bell curve and more of a pixelated bell curve. And that's where it gets really complicated. It's like, if I had to try to extrapolate from just anecdotal interactions with the market the the past, say, six months, the seed stage market in Europe still feels very much like a smooth curve. Whereas to your point, the growth part of the market feels more like a pixelated curve. And that pixelated curve was already better than it was a, a decade ago. I think during 2020, 2021, where money was very cheap, there were tons of money that was coming in from abroad to compete for European deals and pricing them up. And it, it created this illusion of, of more smoothness. But that seems to have been slightly paused in the last, let's say, nine months. And so does that mean that it's permanent? Or does that mean that it's more of an issue of interest based upon what's the cost of capital today relative to a risky investment and what's available out there that's a little bit more safe? It's unclear. But that's kind of the difference between the early stage and the growth stage from what I can see right now. Makes a lot of sense. Super interesting. Now, when I was looking through the website, I saw some really impressive names there for some of the unicorns that you've been part of. So just to read off a couple that I'm familiar with, Hopin, Wise, Revolut, SoRare, WeFox, UiPath. These are some big, big companies and some big names. So you were an early stage investor there. Are there any commonalities that you can think of you know, across all of those different unicorn founders? Like, is there anything that do you see as just a pattern of, you know, this is what you know, they all seem to have in common or these types of traits they have in common? Anything like that? So um, I've been toying around with this idea of writing a blog post around startup basics. And I'm going to just ad lib it right now on your podcast. And the reason why I call it startup basics is because it's writing about a subject that many of us have heard 500 million times. And I was reflecting on it and trying to answer this question you asked me in a sort of a root cause way, because you can look at the many little elements that have made companies successful, the timing of the market, you know, where they were. And those are all contextual. It's very hard to like give any kind of advice on something that's contextual. For example, it's very hard to give advice to a, a company that's entering the fintech market in 2023 when, you know, Revolut and Wise were entering it in much earlier stages in that growth curve when there was less competitors, right? So, Advice on that basis would be kind of pointless. So I was thinking like, well, what is a root cause analysis of some of the success of the companies? I can't say all of it, but some of it. And I was thinking about this idea of the difference between a vision and a mission. And I was trying to think of how to explain it in a way that doesn't sound trite, because it is such a, like, you know, you know Google, what does vision mean? What does this mission mean? What's a mission statement? What's a vision? And they all sound really cheesy, right? And not saying that they don't have value, but they're more of like, well, where is the value in doing this exercise in the first place? And I was thinking of like, what is the best metaphor I can think of? And this is the bit that I'm going to write in my blog post, which I need to get out soon enough. But maybe I've finished writing it before you send it out. You can link to it. But basically, the idea is based on this movie on Netflix, which is on the on Nims Perma, who in the 14 peaks, he climbed the 14 peaks that are over 8,000 meters in height. Last time somebody did it, I think it took him six years to do it. And he was trying to do it in less than a year. And the movie, there it's not like one of those things where it's a, a plot twist that I'm going to ruin for you. He achieves all of them in less time than a year. So it's like an astronomical achievement. And it's probably one of the best movies about somebody having a vision about something. 
and to try to explain this idea, it's a difference between the mission and the vision is that his mission, he could have articulated his mission in life to be the best Sherpa or the best mountaineer or the best sort of functional set of exercises that somebody does in their day-to-day job to be the best currency exchange, to be the best online communications platform, to the best robotic automation process startup from you know, Europe, or to be the best uh, neobank. Those are all missions. And those missions can be broken down into the actions you take to be the best. So you generally don't stop at, I'm going to be the best. That's not, that's not really a good mission statement. But those are all mission statement elements. Now, what made NIM succeed and become the first person to do these 14 peaks in, in less than a year was that he had a vision. And that vision was, I'd like to do something that nobody's done ever. And not just, I'm not going to just try to like reduce it by a couple months. I'm going to do it by like a lot. And it's almost incomprehensibly difficult to the point where I need to take my mission, which is to be the best mountaineer, and stretch it to the point where it becomes the best of its categories, category defining. And what's really interesting, when you look at these companies and you, and you look at them, at, are they, do they manifest elements of being the best insurance access platform? Yes. You know, is it the best platform to buy football, fantasy football and football NFTs? Yes. But there's others out there. So what's the vision? Well, the vision is to be the definitive category leader and to have certain, it's not just about raising the, the superlatives up a notch. It's, it's about what are the key contracts you need to have? What are the key markets you need to have? What are the key products that nobody could believe that you would do? For example, Revolut, one of the visions that they had was to be the one-stop shop for all financial services. And part of that visionary was rolling out crypto. You know, like that was almost inconceivable. And I remember very vividly that when it was being considered, it almost felt to some of the shareholders that it was a distraction from the relatively more conservative banking products. But Nikolai had that vision. And that vision is ultimately what defined the outcome. And so I think it's a very basic root cause. And maybe it's not the answer you were looking for. But I have to believe that it cannot be found in just operational excellence. Operational excellence just makes you the best Add you the best mountaineer, the best golfer, but it does not make you necessarily category leader. Do you ever have founders come in and share a vision and and you say that vision is just too big or that vision is delusional? Or when you hear a, a big vision, is that what piques your interest and, and gets you excited? No, that doesn't happen because usually you correlate the things, right? Like for example, NIMS was already one of the best mountaineers, if not the best mountaineer in the world when he chose to do this particular thing. Now, he hadn't been doing it for very long, but he had enough of a track record that you could conceivably believe that he was one of the most talented before he embarked on this idea, right? It wasn't entirely like, I've never gone up a mountain before, you know? And he also had an experience in being a special forces operator. He had a lot of things that made the vision seem maybe a bit of a stretch, but Definitely within the capacity of the mental mindset of the individual. And so I think when you asked me this question, you didn't qualify it with saying, based on the capacity that the person's done it, we call it founder market fit. Mm-hmm. But it's like, does this person have the capability to deliver on this vision? If yes, then it's probably worth talking about. But if like it's completely off piste and they have absolutely no knowledge of it, it's like me wanting right now to start a, a new Ferrari. You know, yeah, well, what do I know about making Ferraris? You know, nothing. So I would have zero founder market fit. 
And so therefore, you know, I probably would lack my own business plan if that's what I was coming to myself with. But do you ever see founders who, you know, maybe they don't have 10 years or 20 years of experience in that field specifically, but they've found a way to really articulate that problem and they have a vision and you know, they have a solution that they think can solve that. Are you ever doing investments like that? Or is there always this track record of expertise and experience in that field before you would back them? No, I mean, it's a good question. I, maybe I, I simplified it too much. It's actually nuanced depending on the sector and the nature. So for example, there's a lot of things that as just general day-to-day life, we all are exposed to enough to have some level of of knowledge. I think famously the founder of Soylent didn't know anything about food, right? But he did because he's eaten food his entire life, right? And so he understands kind of why he would or we wouldn't eat something. And I think that's where it gets tricky is that consumer facing products in particular, you can have an opinion even though you've never worked in the industry. And maybe by that standard, maybe my example of me pitching my Ferrari to myself, maybe I would be able to do it if I had an idea why my new Ferrari is better than anything that exists in the market, you know? But where I think it falls short is if you're, for example, selling anti-money laundering software for banks to integrate with regulatory requirements. I mean, honestly, I don't know how you would even know that if you didn't have some sort of exposure to the segment. Makes a lot of sense. And I think that's always the difference too, right? Between a, a missionary and a mercenary. I think a lot of the times the companies that I see and some of the founders that I've even talked to, you can tell that they're a mercenary when they have no real background in that business and no real experience, but they've read somewhere that it's a big, massive market opportunity and they want to go out there and build a business versus the missionaries. I see them typically come from that field. They experience and live that pain and then they set out to solve that pain. So that's the kind of core difference that I typically see. Yeah, uh, that's exactly it. This show is brought to you by Frontlines Media, a podcast production studio that helps B2B founders launch, manage, and grow their own podcast. Now, if you're a founder, you may be thinking, I don't have time to host a podcast. I've got a company to build. Well, that's exactly what we built our service to do. You show up and host, and we handle literally everything else. To set up a call to discuss launching your own podcast, visit frontlines.io slash podcast. Now, back to today's episode. Now... Let's talk a little bit about just what's going on today in the world. So obviously, there's a lot happening. And I I know you work with a lot of founders very closely. So what do these conversations look like with early stage founders? What are you advising them to do in this current market? And and what are you advising them to really focus on? Yeah, for those of you that are listening, Brett sent me a sort of preparation cheat sheet. And one that he, he was telling me that he was going to ask me this question, but one of the fun things was that he says in brackets, two to three pieces of practical, non-obvious advice. And now sitting there and I was thinking like, shit, I was like dubious about my own advice now. It's like, what's non-obvious? I mean, I think in times like the ones we're in now where fundraising is it's a little bit more difficult than it was, you know, a year and a half ago, you know, one of them is obviously focus on doing more with having less. And even if you have more, right? And I think that that's pretty obvious, but at the same time, it's like, for not for everyone, it's not obvious. You know, I, th- I think some founders, especially those that raised during a time of plenty, still think that the game plan they had during the times of plenty applied today. And so I was torn. I don't know, Brett, what do you think? Is that obvious or non-obvious? Mm, I would say that's non-obvious. It's non-obvious. Maybe I have to rephrase that. It's like, the super vague things. So we had someone on and I asked them that question. They said, you know, right now it's just about, you know, all about focusing on the team and and making sure that the team feels supported. And that just seemed like 
fluffy and vague. And I think founders listening in would say, oh, wow, thank you so much for that wisdom. Like, I know what to do now. So just looking for things like that, that founders would listen in and be like, ah, maybe that's something that I already know and I'm already thinking. But hearing this as a reminder again on this episode is you know something that's going to push me across the line to actually take action. So those are the type of things that we're looking for. And I think that one passed the test. Fine. All right. So the second one is on that topic that you were just discussing that was slightly, maybe it was phrased by a previous interviewee a little bit more generally, but I think that there's some root to it, which is, it really comes out to leadership. The nature of leadership during a booming market can be a lot more lax than in a tightened market. It's not quite a borderline crisis. Leadership during a crisis gives you a lot of flexibility as a leader to be a little bit more domineering, in a, not in a bad way, but in a sort of like, hey, we need to make cut costs, we need to survive at all. Like that's during a crisis, there's a little bit more of a burning platform that enables a certain kind of leadership to exist. But we're in this phase where it's not quite crisis, although it can feel that way for many. And definitely the SVB thing generally pushed people into that for 100% sure. But we're also not in a stage of, of plenty where there's enough room for everyone to be involved in every decision. So I think one of the key things that I would advise founders right now in this market to do is focus on true leadership versus hype leadership. And so we'd have to unpack, well, what the hell is true leadership? Well, true leadership is partially going back a little bit to what does a vision look like in this context? How the the chess pieces moved? What does that mean in terms of the team that you can have and that you can't afford? What does that mean in terms of training people? What does that mean in terms of patience? What does that mean about inclusiveness of certain ideas from your colleagues? And basically, you get more, you get less margin of error on every decision you make. So every decision you make, you either need to consult, you either need to be speedy about it, or you need to be more considered in the implications of that decision. And so you really need to think through your leadership and invest in thinking through not only the, the impact your decisions have, but how you take them and the impact that they have on the people and the cash runway. I'm going to categorize that as not obvious. And that is super interesting. And I, I like how you expanded on that. And, and that's super interesting and super compelling. So you passed it, Carlos. Thanks. <laughs> <laughs> now, I want to make sure I cover something here. And that is your book. So the fundraising field guide. I know it's probably packed with a lot of interesting advice and, and very useful advice. But if we had to distill maybe you know, two or three real takeaways from the book and, and core pieces of advice from the book, what would that look like? Yeah. So um, in the world of development and operations for creating products for the cloud, there's this DevOps exists. And DevOps could be described as the intersection of of culture, uh, methods, and tools, right? And if somebody who's involved with DevOps would probably argue that culture trumps pretty much everything. It's a culture of inclusivity between the people who are building and the people who are deploying and and resources required and, and collaboration of the interval of, of innovation. And, and I think that if I had to describe the book to some extent, it's a DevOps-y way of fundraising. It's a way of reconciling some of the things that are repetitive in a fundraising process, but that are evolutionary, that are iterative rather. And the book is structured by starting off with the mindset, the closest thing to the culture. Obviously, culture is more than one person. In this case, I've written a book from the point of view of a single founder. Obviously, with a team, it'd be slightly different. But as a single founder, the closest thing to metaphor culture would be the mindset. And so 
I think the predominant thing that I try to get across to people is that getting 80 rejections is as much of a mindset game as it is a, a iterative, what am I doing wrong? And that's probably like the, if anybody walks away from reading the book, it's like getting that idea across. It's like organized, iterative improvements on all elements of a fundraising process to get to a yes whilst keeping yourself sane. And that's probably the best summary I can do. And I'm on my second revision of it, and I'm thinking about doing a third. And the difference is how to navigate the context in which the book was written. And the first edition was written during the growth phase of the last decade, but not quite the frothiness of COVID times. The second revision happened during the frothiness of COVID times. And a fun anecdote for those that are listening to the podcast is that I had to make a change in the cover to represent the fast growing set of rounds that were happening. I didn't know where they were going to end. So I didn't want to put a number on the cover. So I put a little X, X million for your first round. Because I was like, shit, is this going to be tens of millions or is this going to be single digit millions by the time this book is in print? And so I wrote it with a perspective of like, even though more money is a good thing, there is a limit to where more money is a good thing. And actually that's proven out to be the case. And I walked through why that's the case. Uh, summary, if you take too much money, expectations are all time high. If you don't ship, you're really stuck. And so the book is basically that. There's the mechanics of it, the methods. There's the tools, which are everything from the fundraising pipeline, cap tables, and all those things. And then there's the mindset. And that's why I liken it to the DevOps approach to fundraising. Well, before the interview, I purchased a copy and I'll make sure to link to the link as well so that people can purchase one as well or founders can purchase one as well, because I think that's very useful. And I think that's going to be exciting to see the updated version. Now, one other question I want to ask you before we uh, move into final questions. So I know you've invested in over 450, and maybe this is going to be a hard number to come up with. How many pitches have you sat through, would you say, over the last 10 years or just really in your career, if you had to try to put a number to it? Very good question. I mean, I think, so 15 years, easily 1,000 a year. So let's just go with 15,000. Are there any things that you can think of that just drive you crazy that you see founders do in their pitches or in their pitch decks that you just you know, wish you could put on a billboard that says, founders, stop doing this? Anything like that come to mind? So there's two parts of that question. One of them is the stuff that's seasonal, right? Like things go through fashion. And so it's hard to like really criticize that when they come and go. And like, you know, there's everything from stylized fashions, you know, like back in the day when Prezi was cool, you know, how many decks we got that were from Prezi or, you know, certain stylistic elements that are seasonal. And so therefore, I just kind of acknowledge those like, oh, that's interesting. Like people are really into this now, you know, or phrasing of this. Then there is misrepresentations. Those are probably the ones that I find the most amusing, you know, um, especially during periods when there's a lot of buzz, where you get AI companies that aren't really AI, that kind of stuff. I wouldn't say that that drives me crazy in any way. It's just, it's just kind of funny because you're like, well, well, what are you exactly if you're not this, but you're trying to say you are. Um, and, I, and I understand why that is. You know, there's certain segments that are super interesting at any given point in time and you want to be near and close to them. But then that just needs to be better explained. But other than that, no, there isn't anything that sort of annoys me anything like that. I think the toughest decision founders have in terms of a deck is how they weave in their personal stories into why they're building something. And I don't know if there's one fast answer to that. I think that some people don't necessarily have histories that justify the idea. And in other cases, they have ideas 
that are completely aligned with what the history is and, and therefore it's completely believable. And it's just, it's never easy to do that. So I, I don't think people should beat themselves up over that. But I think maybe if you force, put a gun somewhere headed, I would probably say the most awkward thing is whenever people try to hide tricky historical periods of the company. And that's, I don't say it's bad. I say it's awkward because it, it's going to come up somehow. You know, like when you look at you getting pitched by two people and like there's four people on the deck and two of them aren't involved in the company anymore, that kind of stuff. Or where you look at the cap table and it's got some names that haven't been involved and have a big ownership stake and it hasn't come up. You know, those are the kinds of things where it's like, it's awkward and sort of needs addressing. And, you know, most of the time, it's not necessarily a, a killer. And then it, especially the company itself is doing something particularly meaningful. But it's the kind of thing you don't want to find about by accident. Makes a lot of sense. And on the, the topic of, you know, the personal storytelling. So I really like Hopin. I've, I followed their journey a lot. And I think Johnny's done a very good job of telling his personal story to set the table for why he started the company. And at a high level, I, I don't remember exactly what the illness was, but I know he was stuck in bed. He was disconnected. He wasn't able to connect with people in real life. And yeah, as he was sitting there, that's where the idea really came from. You know, something along those lines, which I think is just a very powerful personal story. And I, I think he's done a great job of making sure to get that story out there into the world in most of the media interviews that I've seen. Was that type of story crystal clear at the start? Or do you see these stories as something that have to really be like developed and refined? And is it like an active conversation that founders and investors typically have to get that story perfectly crisp? Or was that type of story crisp from the start? No, I mean, Johnny's was a particularly unique one. You pick like the one that's like really unique to the individual and the life circumstances. So I, I would say that his is that literally not changed at all, you know? over the years. And I would say most of them don't evolve. I mean, they're factual at the end of the day. So I don't, you would hope that they don't like get embellished over the years, right? But it's more of like the relevance of their background becomes more evident as time goes on. You know, that if you look at the story of the Transferwise founders and you look at their origin, it wasn't the first product. It wasn't evident where that would manifest itself into a relevant product, but now it's increasingly manifested. And so that's always nice. It just it sort of justifies the narrative of like, this is where we're coming from. This is what we're trying to do. But no, I generally feel like people are pretty honest about those kind of, I mean, that's the kind of thing you really can't make up. And we've only actually had, out of all the investments we've made, we've only actually had one person bullshit us about that. And uh, our old chairman, Saul Klein, has a quote that I actually quite like. It, it's like, don't optimize for the assholes. And we decided not to do anything to, really go down the path of trying to validate somebody's story as bullshit or not. I mean, most people have some origin point that is truthful for a story, and then they might embellish it a little bit. And it's rare that people go off piece on that. And that circumstance only happened once to us. And, you know, it's a story for another day, Brett. But it's just like one of those situations where you're like, you know, 99.9% of the time people tell the truth, and it's generally aligned with why it is that they're doing something. Yeah, and I think for me, and when I mentioned that, it's not a matter of you know, embellishing on a story, but it's getting clarity on the story. So what I see from a lot of the founders that I work with is, you know, your life journey is complex and a lot of stuff happens in your life. And sometimes they don't know how to arrange all of those details in a story format that 
makes sense in the context of, you know, why they're doing what they're doing. So I've seen that a lot with practitioners who turn into founders or especially technical founders. I've seen them just struggle with the crispness of their story and articulating that story in a in a clear way. So that's what I was asking for there. Not necessarily if you know, people are making up stories and just pulling stuff out of their ass. Yeah, okay, fair enough. I mean, I can think of two companies that fit what you just described. And in both cases, it's because of the precision of what their product is going to be doing was also nebulous. So they were holding, it was like they were holding ambiguity on the reconciliation of their story with the vision of the product because the product itself was unclear to them. It was a, a somewhat a product based upon evolution that the customer was going to enable them to evolve from. And as a consequence, it becomes hard to reconcile your story relative to something that is evolving as it goes. Makes a lot of sense. And something else I want to dive into, because that's the uh, the core topic of this podcast that we normally talk about with founders, is this idea of category creation. So when you're working with founders and they say, I'm going to go out and create a category, what's your initial reaction? And what do you encourage them to do to make sure that this truly is a new category play and it's not better to have them just positioned into an existing market category? I was thinking about this question and I honestly can't think of a single founder that has said that to me. I can't think of a single person who said, I'm going to create a new category. I think that's a very enlightened marketing concept and it requires a segment that is overly competed already and visibility on basically betting on a positioning statement. If somebody has that level of confidence, you're more investing in a positioning statement than you are on a product. Whereas what I've seen is more that there is like a product that's created and that in parallel, there is a creation of a category and then it neatly fits into that, whether it's on the same year or like a year down the road. And then it gets lumped into that, you know, neobanks or collaborative consumption or buy now, pay later services. or And so I think that it's a very hard one. I, I don't think I can recall a single founder who's come to me with a very clear, like, this is a brand new category of this. It's almost always, we play within this, we do that, we're slightly different than these, and we believe that we have enough differentiation to stand out. And then from there, they can evolve into being category-defining companies as the category itself is, is nascent, which it's almost like if the category is a little bit more mature, you can come in with that kind of premise and that you're getting funding for the positioning novelty. But I think if, if the category itself is already nascent, like let's just go back to neobanks as an example, then generally you're already kind of a participant in it. It's rare that you can declare yourself the first. Maybe that's more of a, a Silicon Valley thing. And you know, I'm, I'm based here, so a lot of the guests that I bring on when they're, they're founders, they are you know, from here as well. And that book, Play Bigger, which is all about you know why you need to create a category and, and really tells this rather like sexy, juicy story about category creation that seems to have gotten in the hands of every founder these days. And everyone's talking about creating a category. And I, I would say the majority of founders that I bring on, they're like Series A, typically, all of them have this aspiration and, and this claim that they're after category creation and they, they view it as a category creation play. So... I wonder if that's you know, maybe one of those slight differences just in the material that's being consumed across these two different markets. Maybe. I mean, it's funny. This is an interesting one that we might have to either give it more time or more concrete examples. But it's where like, what point is somebody saying something to create a branch of a category that's already nascent to begin with? 
versus somebody coming into a category that's already existing, but being the first one of its kind. Like for example, the first cloud native of something, right? Like if you're the first cloud native of something, the something isn't new. It's like, you're just the cloud native version of that. So you could say you're category defining because you're the cloud native version of it, or the categories already existed. You're just the first of an alternative. And so I think that's where it becomes slightly a semantic discussion, but but I hear you, maybe there's some cultural elements to that, but I'll have to reflect on that. That's a good one. I ought to reflect so if I can recall anybody coming up with like very clearly stating that upfront, like business category defining at the seed stage. Yeah, and that makes sense. And maybe that is because it's at the seed stage and those thoughts come a little bit later on. How I generally think about it or like the follow-up question I ask is, okay, so is this a new line item? And I would say 70% of the time, it's not a new line item. It's just taking away from an old line item. So when that's the case, it seems like that you know, really is more of like a, a redefining an existing category or the next generation of that existing category, as opposed to a totally new category. But I think once you get into line items, and of course, that's only really relevant, to like enterprise B2B, that's like my general way of thinking about it. It's all about that new line item. Yeah. And, and you know, it's a good one as any. Like, I was just thinking of what's a perfect example of a line item that didn't exist in 20, 2018, 2019, but now does. And if you think about Zoom as a line item per, per seat, per company line item, it probably wasn't in most companies in 2018. Now it's like pretty much many companies will have a license with Zoom, Teams, or something else. But that didn't exist, you know, four years ago, five years ago. And what's interesting about that is that the category, which is online meeting software, existed. And so that's where it gets slippery. Like, what did, is Zoom a new category of that? Or is that just because things change and then that category surfaced? And then they therefore changed the category because of what they were doing that made it slightly better. So it's a slippery slope there. It's a good one to sort of noodle on. Yeah, I think that's why there's so much debate all over, at least on my LinkedIn feed, everyone's fighting about category creation and what it really means to create a new category. And can you create a new category? And yeah, there's some who say there are, you know, are new category creators in software besides maybe Mark Benioff. And even if you really dig into that, you know, maybe that wasn't a category creation play. So I think it's a, a widely debated topic and you know, there's no clear definitions on it, it seems. Mm-hmm. Now, last question here for you, since I know we are way over on time. So give us some predictions, high-level predictions. What do you anticipate is going to happen in the world of startups and early-stage venture capital over the next, let's say, 12 months? Uh, 12 months is a bit narrow in the sense that it makes it less fun. Go big. How, how, uh, what time frame do you want to go in? Well, five years. Let's go five. And the reason why okay. I say less fun is because you know, basically what everyone's looking at is what the Fed and what large public market reactions are to capital and inflation. And that will dictate how much the cost of capital is shifted in favor of deploying across all different types of assets, not just safer assets in the the near term. And so, you know, to some extent, you could argue that the biggest thing to watch this year is shifts in, in risk appetite towards riskier assets. Right. So that's why I say it's, it's probably like, yeah, that's a year, right? That's like less than nine months. That's probably the, the major thing. I, I don't think we're going to have robots pop out of Chat GPT 5 in the next six months, right? Like we already know that that is already in motion. We're not going to really delve into open AI stuff because 
it's still very much a frothy subject. Then, and it's within the next nine months, we'll see an evolution of where we are today. But it's not, you know, that five month horizon adds a little bit more complexity to the question. How do you feel about that? I love it. All right. So five years. So there's a, a book that I really enjoyed reading called The New Dark Age. And the author's James Bryden. One of the things that's really interesting about what we do and the kind of people we are in, in our industry is that we're generally very optimistic. And because we're very optimistic, it means that we generally look at things from a view that technology is going to solve food, health, uh, productivity, and all those elements that are super important for us to like solve in order to have uh, humanity continue to grow. You know, one of the typical case studies of this is, you know, all the fear that existed around us running out of food for the population that we currently have on the planet. But it didn't factor in the increased productivity in soil, technologies like robotics, hydroponics, automation of harvesting, and just better yield on crops, right? And so I think when I look at the next five years, there's going to be continuous linear, if not exponential growth across things like automation, healthcare, data science. Each one of those things has a subset of different innovations stemming from the increased use of automation. So those are all the things that are, like, if you were to ask me this question of, like, what's the most non-obvious in five years, I would say it's the amplification of all the secondary order of all this growth and all this positivity. And that's what this book covers to some extent. And it's really the increasing social impact that all this data has created all the potential issues that the difficulty in trusting the source of data and or written copy, where it comes from, how it's deduced, how it was combined, what role government will need to play in terms of not only normalizing and controlling how this is used and how it's managed, but how it integrates with other countries. And a lot of the mental health impact of this, including the inequality in society that will be created through this. And so I think what will be interesting is to see how all those things are reconciled with technology because that, you know, like what's the opposite of this would be to do nothing. And I don't think that's likely. So what will be interesting is how the current crises that crisis, whatever plural crisis is, what happens in this current state over the next five years will be a very interesting thing to see from a technology point of view because you will have for example, we'll have on the climate side of things, we'll have to improve the interoperability and the integration of many sources of electricity generation into existing grids that were designed for in order to include many new sources of renewable energy generation, but also storage, which is going to define a lot of the solution to the climate problem. We'll have to deal with how to normalize, how to share, how to encrypt and how to regulate the use of data across different silo data pools to better generate automated responses and automated deductions from that data, both for healthcare, for finance, for cybersecurity. We'll also have to deal with the impacts to society of having access to all this information and not being able to process it as an individual and the anxiety that it causes people to not be able to process it as an individual. And lastly, some of the cybersecurity challenges of controlling and managing all of this. You know, cybersecurity is not just about protecting people from getting in and stealing stuff. It's now about showcasing that something is what it is that it says it is. And that's hard in this day and age. So those are the things that in five years, I think are probably 
some of the interesting trends to watch because they're not going away. So I, I say trends to watch because people might disagree with them, but to some extent they're already happening. So it's more of like, how do we deal with them? But I do fundamentally revert back to an optimistic worldview, meaning I'm not belittling the size of our problems. I'm just saying that our ability to solve them is probably bigger than that. So you think the world's going to be a, a good place in five years? It's going to be around? Yeah, I think there's some issues that, you know, when we fast forward and we looked at the world, if we were in our, you know, in 1800s, and we fast forwarded to 2023, we'd be surprised by the amount of air pollution in certain parts of the world, right? Like, we'd be surprised by that as a rural 1800er. But at the same time, you'd be completely impressed by the fact that you have pretty much a pill for just about everything that, that ailed you in the 1800s. And so I think we'll have a similar shock value, not in five years, probably longer, but in five years, we definitely will see a bigger and bigger impact of climate change. We'll see a bigger, bigger impact of AI and misinformation warfare. We'll see a bigger impact of global and geopolitical tensions and how that's reconciled. So those are pretty guaranteed contrasts from where we are today. Makes a lot of sense. And, and I'll make sure to link to that book you mentioned as well, just for anyone who wants to check it out. And I did add it to my Amazon cart, so I'll be reading that in the coming weeks. Carlos, we are way over time here. I'd love to keep you on, but you left me wanting more, and I have a bunch of follow-up questions that I want to ask you, so we may have to save that for round two in the future. Before we wrap up, if people want to follow along with you or if founders want to get in touch with you about potentially working together, where should they go? So for funding on our website, there is a section called Seeking Funding, or you're looking for funding on me, just make sure that I get the link right. But otherwise, you can go through LinkedIn. You can go through Twitter. I'm at at CEE or email me. The link for Seedcamp's looking for funding is literally seedcamp.com slash looking dash for dash funding. And it's on the top right hand corner. It says looking for funding. That's probably the easiest way just because we make sure that more than just one person looks at it. Everybody looks at it. But um, yeah, look forward to hearing from you. Awesome. Carlos, thank you so much for taking the time. I really appreciate it. Really enjoyed this conversation. I feel like I learned a lot. So thanks so much for taking the time. Yeah, no worries, Brett. All right, keep in touch. This episode of Category Visionaries is brought to you by Frontlines Media, Silicon Valley's leading podcast production studio. If you're a B2B founder looking for help launching and growing your own podcast, visit frontlines.io slash podcast. And for the latest episode, search for Category Visionaries on your podcast platform of choice. Thanks for listening and we'll catch you on the next episode. 